Father, as we reflect on this reading, would you teach us today to do your will? Teach us to be faithful, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but to regard others as greater than ourselves. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we start off, I want to tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, I'm a little odd, though, and so it's a strange story to be your favorite story. Uh, but some of you know, this spring I finished doctoral studies at a school up in Wisconsin called Neshota House, Neshota House Seminary, which is in the woods of Wisconsin. It's the oldest institute of higher learning in the state of Wisconsin, founded in 1842 as a, an Anglican mission to the native communities and to the Scandinavians who had moved to that part of the world. Uh, and so if you go there to this day, it still feels in some ways like you're in 1842. In some ways, it feels like you're in 842. You know, it's a very strange place. I tell people it's a little bit like Hogwarts because everyone speaks Latin and they swing incense and wear robes. And it's just like a, it's a strange place. Um, but what's interesting is a modern world has been built up all around it. So the school's kind of self-contained, but it's become this affluent lakeside resort community. So as soon as you leave the woods of the school, it's, it's, other, it's you know, more like this world, whereas that's otherworldly. It's very familiar. Um, I, set that, I say that just to set the stage because one of my favorite stories, kind of a legendary story from the school, is from the 1980s. Because a man named Michael Ramsey, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1960s, moved to Neshota House and lived there for several years. And the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the Anglican Church. He's the head of the Church of England and the Anglican Communion around the world. And so the senior most clergy in the whole of the Anglican world. And he is, to this day, one of my favorite Anglican leaders who's ever lived, an incredible man, and yet he loved Neshota House. And so he came to this tiny little school in the woods and lived there with his wife and uh, would teach and lecture, but he loved to go on long walks in the woods and would wear his purple robe when he did, because he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so he would go on these long walks, and one day uh, he got lost. He went so far they got lost in the woods and didn't know where to go and didn't know how to get back to the school. And so he stumbled on the highway. And so just imagine this. He's walking along the highway, you know, mud on his robe, lost in the woods, and a cop comes up and stops and says, are you lost? Who are you? And he says, I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the cop says, sure you are. And he puts him in the back of his car and drives him to the precinct. And so the faculty and staff have to come down to the police station and say, no, you, you've actually arrested the Archbishop of Canterbury. And they have to get him out and take him back to the school. And so I say that because our reading today is all about identity and questioning identity. And so I just thought of that story as I read our passage today because it seems appropriate. Because what you have here is Jesus making outlandish claims about his identity and all the people around there saying, that's, that's not true. That can't be right, uh, especially the religious authorities, the religious leaders of that day, because they lived in a very defined religious system, especially when it came to who was allowed to speak on behalf of God. Only a few people were allowed to do this, and Jesus did not have the proper credentials. And so they say, who are you? By what authority are you doing these things? Um, he did not have the, the right credentials at all. Um, and what's interesting, if you've grown up in church or are familiar with these stories, which I am and I did, I, I always default to reading the religious leaders as the bad guys. 
the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're always the bad guys in these stories. And yet I don't know what it says about me, but I find myself often very sympathetic with them. I can get where they're coming from because these are people who've given their life to uphold the things of God. And they're trying to uphold the traditions and the customs that they've been given. And they see someone like Jesus and say, you're a threat to our way of life. You're a threat to what we hold more precious than anything in the world. And yet the whole point of this story is that they uphold the traditions and the customs and they miss the point in the process. They miss the, the thing to which, the person to which everything that they had received actually points. The end, the destination of all of it. Alexander Schmemann, who's a famous Russian theologian, said Jesus was the end, is the end of religion. Meaning Jesus fulfills everything that religion is ever meant to point to. Anything religion is ever meant to actually signify or move people towards. And yet they fail to get this. And that's the heart of our story. And yet what I want us to do is I want to sit for a few minutes with Jesus' response. When confronted on his identity, confronted on his authority, how does Jesus respond? What does he do? And what we see in today's reading is I think he puts on a bit of a master class. It's a master class on how to respond when confronted, how to respond in a confrontational moment. Because what does he do? He, he moves their hearts. He actually speaks to their hearts. And yet what I want us to see is how he does this. Because what does he say to them? Does he say, you fools, do you not know who I am? Do you think I need your authority, you sad, silly men? No, he, he doesn't. He asks them a question. He starts telling them a story. As Eugene Peterson used to say, he tells it slant. He comes at it from an angle. And I think in our moment right now, where globally, culturally, this moment, everything is supercharged. Everything is tense. It's turned up to 11. We as the church need to learn a lesson on how to tell things slant. How to come at it from an angle, how to come in the side door, not to compromise truth in any way, but to say it in such a way that it's disarming, that people might actually hear what we have to say. And that's what Jesus does. That's what you see Jesus do here. He tells a story so as to diffuse the tension in this moment. And I think there's something for us to learn there. So just a couple of things, two or three things I see in this passage. The first is Jesus, like I said, he diffuses a tense situation. Jesus diffuses a tense situation. And I think you and I need to be smarter on how we engage people, especially people who come at us with hostility. And you may not immediately think of a bunch of people who are uh, coming at you with hostility. And yet, if you think for a moment, it may be there in in ways that aren't as immediately uh, uh, present or or, uh, clear to you. I'm a parent. I have three kids. My children come at me with hostility. (laughs) Um, If you are a parent, you can relate to this. If you um, have ever had parents, you have come at them with hostility. Uh, This is a thing we do. And yet I'm mindful of the fact that so often as a parent, I simply meet my kids with that hostility and try and diffuse it, not by being a smarter parent or being more creative as a parent, but I just try and um, be more hostile towards them than they are towards me and therefore secure the outcome that I want. And yet, Anyone who's tried that, which everyone has, knows it doesn't work. You're not actually creating goodness and virtue and beauty in the life of your child. You're just trying to suppress whatever is presenting so that you get your way. Uh, Maybe coworkers, maybe in your vocation, you work with people who see the world very differently than you. And this is maybe uh, me speaking more secondhand than firsthand, because as far as I know, uh, Sindhu and Lydia, Gypsy and I, we, we, we have 
mostly shared worldviews. They don't come at me with hostility, at least every day, you know, from time to time. Um, Sindhu especially, always so hostile. Uh, but most of the time we get along. But you may be in a different setting. You may be in a work environment where you, you regularly are bumping up against people who see the world radically different than you. And you can either increase that tension, increase that sense of conflict, or you can come at it from an angle come at it through the side door and actually open up room for a conversation. He'll hate me that I'm doing this. I didn't ask permission because he might've said no. Uh, But Daryl's really good at this. Uh, I've learned so much from Daryl in this. Daryl Boyer uh, works in corporate America, works with people from a wide range of backgrounds, wildly diverse context. And I've learned three words from Daryl that are truly transforming um, the way that I view this conversation, especially as it relates to faith. Because Daryl hasn't put his faith uh, on the shelf and left it at home. He often finds himself in faith conversations. And the thing that I've learned from Daryl is to say, in my tradition. (laughs) Daryl taught me this. Because if you say, well, in my tradition, we do this or this. Or in my tradition, this is often the way uh, we approach that question. There's something about that I've learned from Daryl that's very disarming. It actually invites conversation. It invites relationship. And so if you work in any kind of context where you find yourself regularly up against wildly different worldviews, um, go talk to Daryl because I think we could all learn something from him. He's really helpful in this way. Um, So thank you for letting me uh, put you on the spot. It's really helpful. Um, Related to this, the other thing Jesus teaches us today in this masterclass that he's putting on uh, is to use our minds. Jesus teaches us to use our minds. Verse 25 says they argued with one another, but many other translations say they reasoned with one another. And Jesus has a place for reason. Don't ever let anyone tell you that to be a Christian, you check your mind at the door. It's simply not true. Jesus longs for them to use their mind, to use the reason that he's given them because he's not trying to exploit them. He's not trying to shame them. We all know that there's something profound of actually coming to a conclusion on our own rather than it just being told to us, spoken over us. And so he's trying to pull them a little bit deeper to say, let's actually engage. Let's have a conversation. Use your mind, especially because if he took an authoritarian posture, they're not going to listen to him. They're already questioning his identity. They're questioning his right to say the things that he's saying. And so he engages them in their mind. And I think there's great wisdom for us here. This is a low-hanging fruit, but it's a political moment we live in. Uh, Six weeks or so from an election, it is on the top of many people's minds. I'm not overly political, unless we talk about Jesus, and then I'm very political, because the kingdom of God is deeply political. But I don't care much for American politics. Um, If you do, uh, and many do, um, you've likely found yourself in conversations with people you love or are close to, family, parents, siblings, uh, children maybe, whatever it may be. encountering opinions that are wildly divergent, that you simply do not see eye to eye. And in that moment, what seems to come forth is this like carnal desire to just win at all costs. Like, I just want to win. I want to show you the error of your ways. And if I can't, I will at least deeply judge you in the silence of my heart. (laughs) This This is what we do. And yet I wonder, could we actually invite this sense of reasoning, this sense of what would it look like to engage relationally by just asking questions. If you find yourself in a moment like this, Jesus teaches us to ask questions. You could just say, why do you think that's so important? What is so significant about that policy to you? Why do you find that candidate so compelling? 
Rarely do we, and I'm the first to say this, even though I don't care much about it, I still want to win. I still just like to feel like I'm winning. And so I, I will rarely have such a reasoned response. It's always emotion leading the way, which doesn't open conversation. So what would it look like to just pause for a minute and say, let's actually speak to the heart level? Because that moves us. Otherwise, we're just parroting things we've heard on the news, where whatever our choice of drug may be. What if we actually moved our hearts in such a way that we're speaking at a core level to the the very core of who we are? Because that's what Jesus actually does. They don't like it. It should be noted. Like there's no sense in which I'm saying, listen to these little anecdotes I'm giving you and you'll go to family lunch this afternoon and just hug it out and have this like moment where you're all besties and, you know, see eye to eye on everything. That, it, that isn't actually what happens. It's not what happens with Jesus. He speaks to their heart. He moves them, engages their heart and their mind, and yet they're furious with him. But it's not a superficial fury. It's actually something that's reached a deeper level. And that's what I think Jesus invites us to as the church, to be creative in how we engage so we can actually speak to people's hearts. Because when hearts are open, we see things differently. And I think that's the heart of the story Jesus tells. He's trying to show them the upside down nature of the kingdom that things are not always as they appear. Because they say, you don't have the authority to do the things you're doing. And yet he says, I don't need your permission. The authority to do these things is granted by my very nature, that I'm the son of God. Uh, it appears in the story that the religious elite are the favored people, that they're the ones who know what they're doing. And yet Jesus tells a story to say, it's not as it seems because the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom ahead of you. Maybe in our own day, it's the people who know all the things to do and know just how to be good church people and who uh, volunteer for all the programs and do all the things, yet maybe we learn something from the people in the margins, the people who do not know all the rules or fit in neatly and nicely, and yet Jesus might be saying, from them we learn the nature of the kingdom. From them we see what it means to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom. It's not how you begin the race, but it's how you finish. It's the point of the story. It's not the the son who says, I will, and then doesn't. It's the son who says, I won't do that. And yet actually eventually obeys and chooses to obey. And I think there's something beautiful about this because it's this way of obedience. Jesus is saying, you could have failed a hundred times. If you fail a hundred times, it's okay. If in the end you actually say yes and you choose to walk away of obedience and yet it's so easy to give God lip service and say, sure, I'll do that. Uh, my children do this. Yeah, I'll go clean my room 10 minutes later. Still do, still there. I, I'm gonna do I, I was doing it. I was doing it. Um, there's something beautiful about actually obeying and saying, even if I struggle to get there in the beginning and I say, it's a, it's a task too tall. It's an invitation that I simply can't say yes to. If we stick with Jesus and let him speak to our hearts, we might actually find ourselves in this place of obedience, which is what he asks of us, wholehearted obedience. Revelation says Jesus spits us out if we're lukewarm. He'd rather us be hot or cold. So the invitation here is to actually be on fire with the life of God, to be so moved in our core that it changes who we are. I think of St. Paul's words, and maybe we'll close here. He says in Romans 2, it is not hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Maybe that's the challenge to us today, to be people who can so hear the word of God to us that we're not just hearers who give lip service, but we actually obey and live lives of complete devotion to him.
Let it be so, Lord Jesus. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.